Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The paradigm is shifting once again in the Middle East, and Saudi Arabia is at its center. From signing up soccer stars at exorbitant salaries to play in a brand new league, to signaling a willingness to engage with Israel and Iran, to getting the Biden administration to put aside its human rights concerns. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and it is a genuine kingdom with an all-powerful crown prince exercising authority, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, has asserted itself into the center of global geopolitics, yet in many ways the country remains an unknown entity. I decided to ask Stephen A. Cook, any Enrico Matteo fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, who knows the country and the region as well as anyone, for a little tutorial about this seemingly new Saudi Arabia. But before we begin, a reminder. I produce this podcast with no institutional or commercial support. That's okay. I value my independence. But to keep it going, I need your help please visit the website goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. And now for a lesson on Saudi Arabia with Stephen Cook. I began by asking him why all the attention on the country and why now? I think that there's a number of reasons why there are so many new things, new headlines coming out of Saudi Arabia. I think we know that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, can be brutal. We know that he has made Saudi Arabia into the kind of police state that it never was, was always authoritarian. We know that he can be impetuous and do unwise things on foreign policy, but domestically, he's done some very important things uh, that has actually changed Saudi Arabia in positive ways. Now, I'm not saying that across the board that that's good. Remember, it's more of a surveillance and police state than it's ever been before. But one of the headlines over the weekend was that Kuwaitis were traveling to Saudi Arabia to see Barbie. It used to be Saudis traveling to Bahrain or other parts of the Middle East in order to see to see movies. And I think that that, that headline underlines the idea that Mohammed bin Salman is an, a, a top-down reformer. He's not a liberal. But what he's doing is he is taking that segment of the population, the majority of the population, which is age 18 to 50, which he's dead center in the middle of that at, you know, in his mid thirties. And he's giving them a lot of what they want. Saudi Arabia is not North Korea. It's not, it's not Syria. Saudis know how other people, their cohorts live around the world in the West, in other parts of the Middle East. And they want to live like that too. Maybe not exactly like they live, but they want some approximation of it. And so he's giving them a lot of that. The movies, uh, sports, uh, men and women who are not related can hang out in cafes together, women in the workforce, women driving, which was kind of the holy of holies for American politicians in the early 2000s. And what he's doing in the process is creating a, a rather significant reservoir of public support for him and his rule. You know, the way he came to power was ruthless and brutal. And you can imagine that within the large House of Saud, there are people who are not supporters of the crown prince. There are people within different sectors, influential sectors of society that are not happy with him, the religious establishment, for example. Um, but if you have the vast majority or significant port portion of the vast majority of Saudis who are supportive of the things that you're doing, 
um, it gives you a significant political advantage. Of course, this comes with costs. The poor reformers, the lonely voices who are calling for more open, more just, more democratic society are the ones who are subject to unbelievable types of, of repression. That's one piece of it. That's one reason there's been this kind of extraordinary changes going on against the backdrop of a deepening surveillance and police state. The second thing is, is that President Biden, in responding to what was happening internally, the, the bad things that were happening internally, in, in response to the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, in response to the three plus year embargo of, of, of Qatar that the Saudis did with uh, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis and the Egyptians, the uh, Saudi intervention in, Sem in Yemen's civil war, which contributed to a terrible humanitarian crisis, made it worse in Yemen. President Biden, as a candidate, claimed that he would make the Saudis a, a pariah, that there was no redeeming value to the Saudi government. Kind of extraordinary for a guy who was the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for some time and who had, you know, 40 plus years of experience in the, in the Senate was thought of as someone who had a lot of expertise in foreign policy. And then much to his credit, when he first came to office, he he wanted to stay true to, to these ideas. He, he wanted to have a foreign policy that was consistent with American values. He told his aides, we need to stand for something. He said he didn't want, he, he, he was going to make MBS a pariah, basically made him a persona non grata in the White House and said that Abdel Sisi, the leader of Egypt, who's also a repressive dictator, would get no more blank checks from the United States. But he, I think he found out very quickly that he actually needed both of those people. Okay, let, uh, let, I'm going to interrupt. It, sorry for the long soliloquy there. No, but that, that's fine. He decided why that he had to reach out. Because you know that the Washington Post, for whom Jamal Khashoggi, and I'll talk more about him in a minute because mm -hmm. I knew the guy. Jamal Khashoggi had a column and his butchering in Istanbul. Yeah. This is not an exaggeration. He was literally right. He butchered. was butchered. That's a great. I I think that's the first time someone described that murder as a butchering, and that's exactly what it was. You know, th this change is not going to win him friends inside of Washington. Um, he'll be pilloried. The closer he gets, or the more open he is, not closer. The more open he he is to Saudi Arabia, uh, he will be pilloried for that. Why do you think this has happened? Two things, really. One, uh, in twenty, in the spring of 2021, Americans were getting vaccinated at a huge rate and decided that they wanted to travel. There was a lot of revenge travel. There was a lot of shopping. There was a lot of people, after two years being at home, wanted to go out and enjoy themselves. And this led to an extraordinary demand in energy. And Specifically, Americans were paying very high prices at the pump, at the gasoline pump. And now it's incredible, but as prices rose at the pump, President Biden's approval ratings dipped. It was, it was it, it, in lockstep. It was extraordinary. And so starting around the spring 2021, the president started sending envoys to the crown prince at can you do something about the oil market? The president's having problems here. I mean, they denied it, but that's exactly why there was as much American one-way traffic to Saudi Arabia. It was because the president was feeling the pinch because Americans were feeling the pinch at the pump. You know, Americans 
think that we have a God-given right to drive around on cheap gasoline. Uh, you know, the rest of the world pays a lot, lot more. But once you break the $4 a gallon barrier, people start losing their minds in the United States, losing their minds. So that was happening through the spring and summer and fall of 2021. And then what happened in early 2022? Russia invaded Ukraine. And that led to further gyrations of the global oil market, which led to a further spike in gas prices at the pump, which contributed to significant amount of general inflation in the United States, which really had a massive impact on uh, President Biden's approval ratings, from which he's recovered somewhat, but not quite. And so then it got real. Then it re And this is ahead of the midterm election. So the president had to sort of move away from this values forward foreign policy, his parochial interests, national interest in a healthy American economy converged on Saudi Arabia, the swing producer. And the, the producer that can produce the most oil cheapest, fastest. And so after a number of overtures, the president had to go to Saudi Arabia and meet the crown prince. And that's where you get that famous photo of him fist bumping with the crown prince. It was the fist bump. The president gets a lot of criticism over the fist bump. Remember, there was still COVID. He's an older gentleman. He's in his late 70s. And he had just been in Israel. And the president who, you know, avows, validly describes himself as a Zionist, has known everybody in Israel since the 1970s. And what his aide said in his few days in Israel, it was a backslapping, hugging, kissing few days. And so they were trying to figure out how would they manage in Saudi Arabia. And they figured a, a fist bump was was less than a hug, but more than just standing, you know, kind of giving the hello sign or whatever. This was the beginning, although it wasn't the end, of the Biden administration's uh, attempts to woo Saudi Arabia. And on that came weapon sales, joint projects. And then the last thing, not just gas prices, great power competition. The Saudis have been ostentatious about the development of their relationship with the Chinese. And the paradigm, the foreign policy paradigm of the Biden administration is great power competition. You know, what's interesting, Stephen, is my my new big project, which will be going out in early October for the BBC, is to mark the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And right. listening to you talk about the power of Saudi Arabia to influence Western governments, American government, it is almost identical because I'm just writing not writing. I, I'm, I'm working my way through archive tape of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger in the middle of October. And then at the end of October comes the oil embargo, which essentially you talk about Americans going crazy when gas goes over four dollars a gallon. Hey, I was driving on 37 cents a gallon. And as soon as it went over 50 cents, I decided I'm getting rid of the car and moving to New York. I mean, <laughs> You don't need a car in New York. Right, of course. I, no, but I mean, in, in all seriousness, these you can mark out how little changes. It's just at intervals. There, there are always intervals between American fist bumps with Saudi Arabia and then long periods where hands off. When I left America in 1985, the big controversy 
was uh, the Reagan administration was selling AWACS, which was the state-of-the-art spy right. plane at that point. And the Jewish community in America was up in arms. They didn't like that because it could be used against Israel. And of course, now, you know, you talk about great power competition. One of the things the Chinese offer all around what used to be called the third world or the developing world is police state technology. They are the leaders in global surveillance. surveillance. Yep. And the issues remain the same. You've got to give the, the, this particular regime, I mean, it's a, a feudal monarchy with 21st century trappings, you know, a feudal monarchy with the world's most expensive soccer players, football players. That's, I, I, that's right. It, it is. And, and what's interesting, I mean, there are some changes. The United States is a produces more oil and gas than Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia is the world's, I think, second largest, maybe the largest now that Russia is offline, exporter. And so, and that's why, even though Americans, we could supply oil for ourselves, but because the oil market is global, we have to keep going back to the Saudis. Now, if the rest of the world, including the United States, if the United States led on this issue and we had a rational energy policy going back to the 1970s, it seems likely that Saudi Arabia wouldn't loom so large in our geopolitics. But, but here we are. Here we are. Like I said, Americans believe they have a God-given right to drive around in cheap gas and behemoth vehicles. So, and we haven't had a rational energy policy. And that's what has compelled, in part, compelled President Biden to seek a rapprochement with the Saudis, despite the obvious contradictions in the relationship when you take into account American values and how uh, the crown prince is overseeing Saudi Arabia with, with Chinese surveillance technology. And here's an irony. I mean, you have to think that the Israelis, who are also leaders in surveillance technology, have been selling to the Saudis as well <laughs> on the 50th anniversary of the Arab oil embargo over the October 1973 war. An enterprising young investigative journalist interested in foreign affairs could do a really good piece about who the, the middlemen have been between Israel and Saudi Arabia in terms of not just surveillance technology, but also, I think, dialogue. sometimes military technology. I mean, I... I And just general general dialogue that's that's happened between the governments over many years. I, I it, is, it, it runs against everything we know about foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, to think that the Israelis and the Saudis have not had an ongoing dialogue over many years. Um, to kind of hash out some of the more difficult issues. Um, and they must happen in, you know, fancy hotels in Geneva or something like that under, you know, in, in secrecy. I, I Just to give you some, a non-Saudi example of this, but to give you some sense, um, in 2021, I ran into a former Israeli official in Dubai and who I'd met some years before. He'd been a very senior person in, in labor-led governments. And I said, Hello, nice to see you again, sir, et cetera. I said, is this your first visit to Dubai? <laughs> and he said to me, this is my 33rd visit to Dubai. <laughs> so these kinds of things happen despite what outsiders see as these kind of frozen, frozen conflicts and relationships. Among the fast, rapidly moving events related to Saudi Arabia, in the middle of the summer of 2023 is this idea that 
finally there might be some more face-to-face contact, open contact. Again, this has an American component in that famously Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law, does business and may have affected introductions between Israel and the Saudis. But that's less important than the idea that these countries who have one thing in common, both countries have a mortal fear of Iranian aggression. Whether that's rational, whether it's used to keep their populations from thinking too hard about, well, maybe we want better domestic politics, right. which I think is often the case in both Israel. I don't, mm-hmm. I can't speak to Saudi Arabia because people keep themselves to themselves. Right. Certainly, it's a good trick for any political leader in Israel to sound the toxin about Iran. Whenever there's domestic trouble, say Iran. Whenever there's some kind of international pressure on MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, say Iran, and it all goes away. I, I think that's right. And what's what's interesting, and you're quite right. I mean, the, oh, much of the headlines have been about the Biden administration's now open efforts to forge a normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, similar to the Abraham Accords, the ones that were spearheaded by the, the Emiratis uh, under the under the Trump administration. Uh, and and most, most recently, the most recent headline in, in that regard is that the Saudis have appointed an ambassador to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Palestinian Authority was set up in 1994. The Saudis had never had any diplomatic representation to the Palestinian Authority because it would mean that they would have to publicly deal with the Israelis. And the Saudi ambassador to Jordan will now serve as the ambassador to the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinians are saying this is potentially a prelude to an actual diplomatic representation in the West Bank. Of course, the Israelis, Prime Minister Netanyahu has um, criticized this. It, it is sort of odd that he is opposed to this. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, as they say, or at least my late father used to say. And um, But it's clearly a signal from the Saudis that they are interested in, in moving forward. Now, that's not to say that normalization between the two countries will happen as quickly as people might think. But what has driven these two countries together, you're quite right, is the perception of Iran's threat. And actually, despite the Biden administration's efforts towards normalization, the the kind of strategic consensus between Israel and, and the Gulf countries in particular happened not because of US diplomacy, but despite American diplomacy. The American intention to... So, well, having signed the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the, the nuclear agreement and the sanctions relief on Iran and the potential for a changing U.S.-Iran relationship drove the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis and others together in ways that they hadn't been before. And all of this talk of normalization and Mohammed bin Salman saying, I can't say that the Israelis are an enemy and the Israelis uh, saying, you know, we're not opposed to Saudi civilian nuclear technology. All of these things are an outgrowth of this strategic consensus. And now that they're, they're, the, the two countries are finding that there may be other areas where they, they can cooperate. But the kernel of that is the mortal enemy and the threat that they perceive from Iran. Okay, perceived is the word. 
because I mean, I, I have been in Iran and I observe from a distance now, I mean, all of this was a while ago, and I observe from a distance that and from experience of reporting from a variety of total, totalitarian dictatorships, authoritarian, varying degrees of undemocratic societies, that I don't fear a state that is run essentially by a, a theocratic council. And I do sometimes wonder if the boogeyman status of Iran is something that objectively people shouldn't be so afraid. What do you think? Yeah, look, I, I think, I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to Israel, if you're your average Israeli, it's hard not to see the Iranians as a, as a threat. Iranian leaders have threatened to burn half of Israel deny the legitimacy of the Israeli state, deny the Holocaust, fund Hezbollah, Hamas. So from the Israeli perspective, Iran is, and, and I think, you you know, if sitting as you were in Tel Aviv or Sterot or Metula, Sterot being on the south, right up against the border with Gaza, Metula up on the border with Lebanon, you perceive this Iranian threat on, on a daily basis. But I think in a way what the Israelis don't like at a strategic level is that Iran either coming in from the cold and or developing nuclear technology, being a screwdriver turn away from having nuclear technology, narrows the Israeli abilities room for maneuver and changes the balance of power in the region at Israel's expense. I think when it comes to the Saudis, you have these two big countries on opposite sides of the Gulf and it's power competition there over who gets to write the rules of the road in the Gulf. Saudi Arabia being a status quo power, Iran, at least from the Saudi perspective, is a revolutionary power that wants to change the rules. Essentially, the Iranians want a seat at the table and the Saudis, the, the, the Arabs on the western side of the Gulf don't want them to be uh, at the table when the rules are written for the region. But there is a slight difference between Saudis and Israelis on the question of and the nature of the Iranian threat. For the Israelis, they focus on the nuclear issue. If you talk to people in the Gulf, including Saudis, they say, look, the, the nuclear program is a problem, but we would buy the, the Iranians a nuclear weapon if they did still not have the ability to fund the Houthis Hezbollah, various and sundry other groups that destabilize the region and make problems in the in the Arab world. That would be the quid pro quo for them. They could they say they could live with a nuclear Iran. Now, of course, if the Iranians go nuclear, you can. I'm, I, I think it's sort of a law of nature that the Saudis would seek nuclear technology themselves. They already are, but be that as it may. They perceive things differently and, and different levels of threat from Iran. Is that legitimate? I mean, it's... But here's it's, another another bit of the news, right? Because in the last 60 days, 90 days, Iran is getting low-level diplomatic, sending low-level diplomatic delegations to Saudi Arabia again after a period of right. many years when there was no contact at all. Yeah, it's 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 true. There hadn't been contact after Iranian mobs sacked the Saudi embassy 
in Tehran in 2016 over the public execution of a prominent Shia cleric in Saudi Arabia. That's part of the complexity of this, is that Saudi Arabia and Iran reestablished diplomatic ties recently after seven or so years in which they had none. Yet if you talk to the Saudis, they still, when you ask them about what their security threats are, they still place the Iranians at the top of the list. Are they posturing for Americans? I think for Americans, they would like to hear, hey, no, we're all going to get along. We're going to get along here and you don't have to worry about it as much. And I'm not sure that the Saudis, uh, despite the diplomatic moves, I, it strikes me that the Saudis are seeking to buy themselves some time so that they can arm themselves and marshal their resources for the, the next step in their evolution of their competition with uh, with the Iranians. At the same time that those low-level diplomatic relations are, are happening and discussions of investment in each other's countries, the U.S. Navy is issuing warnings to civilian shipping in the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf because of Iran's what they call malign activity there, whether it's mining the waters or attacking shipping itself. It's the, there are changes, it's fraught, and it's it's complex. I think the Saudis certainly have used Iran and used the difference between being uh, that, that Saudi Arabia is predominantly Sunni, although it has a significant Shia population, and that Iran is a Shia society as a way of deepening the discourse about competition with Iran and, and instilling fear within the population. I remember I was in Saudi Arabia a number of years ago, and I sat down with some prominent businessmen from the Eastern province. And the first thing they said to me when we sat down to this lovely lunch is, are the Iranians going to attack us here? Are they going to come ashore on the beaches? <laughs> like D-Day? That struck me as wild and un unlikely, but this is the way they were thinking. I, obviously, the Iranian missile threat is much more of a concern, should be much more of a concern to these people than Iranian Marines hitting the beaches. It's interesting because when I was in Saudi Arabia exactly 20 years ago this next month, I've had a hard time finding someone to be my translator for a variety of reasons, all related to the general levels of secrecy and distrust that exist within Saudi Arabia. I mean, the only place that was comparable in my experience was, was um, the Soviet Union, mm. where everybody who worked with foreign journalists knew they were suspected. And that's why, you know, generally speaking, your translator was a KGB, <laughs> if not full member of the KGB, was on the payroll and reporting back everything yeah. you said. I remember going to Saudi Arabia during that era and leaving and feeling like I was being let out of jail. Exactly. And anyway, so the, I, this guy from a distance, this was a trip that was facilitated by Jamal Khashoggi, who at that point was working in the as a as the press attaché in, in the London embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And through him, I... I'd been given the name of a guy, a young guy, worked at a newspaper, spoke excellent English. I think he'd done a master's degree at Harvard. And from a distance, we were on the phone. Yes, I'll be happy to be your translator. Come see me as soon as you arrive. So I did. And I got there and he was no longer available. So, well, this kind of leaves me in the lurch because I don't speak Arabic. And he said, well, I, I think I may find a young man for you. And he found this guy, young guy, Shiite. And... He was very 
helpful and friendly. And he invited me because he had to go away for the weekend from Riyadh to the eastern province, which is where the Shia live in Saudi Arabia, for a wedding. He said, you want to come to a Saudi wedding? I said, yeah, sounds like fun. I mean, I knew there'd be no booze, but okay. <laughs> you know, and and it was it was quite an experience. And we took the train down, and his wife had to sit in a different carriage. Mm-hmm. There was a prayer area in each carriage. It was quite an experience. And he said, I have to go sit with my wife for a while. So for a few hours, I was left alone. It was a very slow train. And at the end of the weekend, he said, my wife says, I can't work with you anymore. I asked him why. He said, because she's afraid that it will affect my career, that I worked with a Western journalist. And and he was Shia. And he, yeah, I mean. Two strikes against him. Exactly. And I heard a lot of that. Not... I'm telling you the story because it's not about, you know, Iranians wading ashore on D-Day, but rather that there was a a sense of an internal sense of being under assault from the Sunni majority and, you know, a variety of other things, you know, related to the, the there are slightly different gestures in prayer between Shia and Sunni, and they were not allowed to pray using those gestures and these are these little things of uh, that make you feel a second-class citizen so it's interesting to hear that that they were worried also about the iranians coming over the water to get to them as they were very you know they were upset about their second-class status as citizens within saudi arabia itself your experience is an extraordinary one especially you know when you think about it the the shia population which is significant is widely has historically been viewed as a as a fifth column and as a result have been under surveillance and repressed far longer and more extensively than the than the sunni population um they have faced many more restrictions at, at the same time where their leaders you know the saudi state has sought to buy off their leaders as well but there is something where it's hard to get insight into how Mohammed bin Salman's changes are affecting the Shia majority because no one will talk about it. And those those places, some of those places remain off limits to journalists and people like me. And, and asking questions about those issues remain very, very difficult. When, on that trip, probably the second day I was in Riyadh, I made a courtesy call at the American embassy. And it also seemed a worthwhile thing to do because it was 2003. The war in Iraq had just happened. It was only two years since the attack on the World Trade Center. Right. It wasn't, and I was on my own, you know, and I'm an American and I'm a Jew. And it's not necessarily a good idea to be wandering around on your own <laughs> right, in Saudi Arabia as an American Jew. So I, I made a courtesy call, but also to let them know, here, I'm in country, and these are my dates and roughly what right. my, where I'm likely to be. And the fellow who was the press attache, I knew from London, and we were having a pleasant chat. And as I do radio. So I said to him, so Frank, what do you think is the principal sound of Saudi Arabia, so I can record it. And he said, the principal sound of Saudi Arabia 
is silence. <laughs> and I said, that's great. It's a great quote, but I actually need to get sound. And and he was right. There was no sound. There was virtually no sound. No one talked. You right. You know, you had to go to the neighborhoods where foreign workers, not American oil workers, but I mean, the people who work as nurses and, you know, to do all the service jobs in Saudi Arabia under the highway in, in Riyadh, where that you, you might hear music or anything that would say sonically, I am in this environment. Otherwise, people didn't want to talk and there's no music or there wasn't then. Right. Um, maybe that's a it, change that, that Mohammed bin Salman. You know, uh, the 20 years, I mean, that was, you know, my first experience in Saudi Arabia was around the same time. And I had lived extensively in the Middle East, Egypt, uh, Syria, Palestinian territories, Israel, in my younger days, you know, long periods of time, year, summers, so on and so forth. And I went to Saudi Arabia for the first time and I genuinely culture shocked. It was the only place in the Middle East that I culture shocked upon, you know, I, I figured I had enough experience of this. People say you're going to culture shock and cetera, but I did. I didn't see any women. And one of my one of my colleagues here, who's a talented Middle East analyst, a guy named John Alterman, said, he said, you know, Saudi Arabia was, was a country around that time, a, a country in black and white. And it's increasingly moving into the technicolor era where, you know, the black being women in hijab and niqab men in their white vogue and now you see more women stepping out and you can hear music and you can talk about certain things although you still can't really engage in a in a, a debate or a serious conversation about the status of the shia in the country there are there remain obviously lots of things that are off limits and i think that this the status of a country is a deepening surveillance and police state in ways that it wasn't before is a is an indication of that and that's what i think is so hard and so complex about saudi arabia is that there are genuine things that have changed in the positive and then there are genuinely things that have gotten far worse for people and american politicians haven't been able to figure this out and i think because biden president biden has had this kind of overwhelming parochial interest in moderating gas prices and the way in which he and his administration have defined America's purpose in the world, which is to confront Chinese power, has pushed the complexity of Saudi Arabia aside. And it's a new partner because if we partner with Saudi Arabia, keeps the Chinese at bay. Going back to the latest surge in oil prices, partially it was in aid of Russia. That was, but I'm going back 18, 19 months when the war started in Ukraine. Well, we, we can prevent Russia from exporting oil, but the Saudis were not helpful at that moment. But the other weekend, there was a conference about peace and Ukraine sent representatives. Now, this is an interesting thing to think that Saudi Arabia is setting itself up or Mohammed bin Salman is setting himself up as a broker for an eventual settlement of that war. Yeah, I mean, just let's start 18, 20 months ago. And Russia is a partner of the Saudis in what's called OPEC Plus. It's the OPEC members plus an additional group of oil producers that are not officially part of the cartel, but 
coordinate with it. And the most important member of the plus side of it is Russia. And the Saudis were unwilling to play ball with the United States, whereas in the past, the Saudis have said, we're going to flood the world oil market with product to help the United States out. In fact, they did that not long after the oil embargo in, in the mid 1970s. They weren't willing to do it this time. They had a confluence of interests with Moscow. War is expensive. And what the Saudis are attempting to do at home is very expensive. Remember, they're building this, this city, Neom, in a place where a city never existed, uh, based on technologies that don't even exist yet. Very, very expensive for them to achieve their dreams, not just in Neom and other, and other things. And this was deeply, deeply unappreciated in Washington. Now you fast forward. And the Saudis are convening an international conference of 40 countries, many from the what we now call the Global South, who are fence-sitters uh, on the conflict in Ukraine. I think for the Saudis, it was less about there being much progress on either moving fence-sitters into the Ukraine column or actually making progress on some sort of peace plan than it was them, the fact that the Saudis were hosting this major conference on a major international the major international interest issue huge land war in europe and it was being convened in jidda by the saudi leadership it wasn't like the americans said oh let's uh let's just go to do this in jidda and the saudis essentially be caterers no this was the saudis convening this meeting and so it's part of that was part of a broader strategy like the massive investment in sports is to reinforce the idea that Saudi Arabia is a player in not only the international economy and the global oil markets, but in tourism, global sport and culture, and diplomacy and geopolitics. This is a piece of unarticulated this vision 2030 that Saudi Arabia is going to be less passive than it has been before and be an active player after all it's a member of the G20 has the largest economy in the Middle East etc etc it should be throwing its weight around in international politics commensurate with its influence in the global energy markets it's interesting that we talk of Saudi Arabia as a country but when I say it's a feudal kingdom, it is the king, or in this case, the crown prince, the the the, the heir presumptive to the mm -hmm. actual title, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and it's hard to, to get things out of the lockbox, which is the the inner workings of the House of Saud, which is not one guy and his six sons. I mean, it's okay. it's big. big. How, how big is it? It's huge. <laughs> It's like 9,000 princes. But, I mean, there are there are minor princes and then there are princes' princes. And Mohammed bin Salman is obviously the latter category. I'll tell you, the Mohammed bin Salman's model for running Saudi Arabia is more analogous to his grandfather, the founder, King Abdulaziz, than his uncles or his father. His uncles would rule by decree, but after there was this elaborate negotiation that went on behind the scenes between different constituents of the regime with family members, non-royal elites, the religious establishment. There would be some consensus and then he would, then the king, whoever it was, would kind of issue a decree. 
Abdulaziz didn't rule that way. He ruled more with an iron fist. And I think that's more akin to what Mohammed bin Salman envisions for the rest of his rule, which at, you know, what, 35, 36 could go on for, you know, 50 plus years. So when we speak of Saudi Arabia becoming a power, we're, we're actually, this is something I, mean, I think people listening have to understand. This is truly a kind okay. of medieval level of power <laughs> with medieval levers of uh, acting on that power at his disposal, the king, which is quite an extraordinary thing. Just want to come back to Israel and this opening to, of a an office consular relationship with the Palestinian Authority at precisely the moment that the current Israeli government is completely <laughs> indisposed to doing anything to help the Palestinian Authority along. Is that not going to create some tension i think it is but i mean in the last few weeks the new york times thomas friedman wrote a piece about this the the complexion of the israeli government and this question of normalization in which he was advocating for normalization and putting these radical racist ministers in the corner and saying having them decide before the Israeli Republic, would they prefer annexation and changing the status of Jerusalem, the holy sites in Jerusalem and tension with the region or worse for decades to come? Or do they want to normalize with Saudi Arabia? I mean, the big enchilada after Egypt, is that, do what, what's the choice? And my response to the column was, oh, those guys would choose annexation and changing the status of Jerusalem. Absolutely. Over. They, 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 they have no real interest in normalizing relations with the Arab world, from which they hold tremendous amount of disdain. So it is rather extraordinary that, one, the Biden administration seems that there's something here that they can get, because the Israeli government is really the problem here. The Saudis say, look, we see Israel as an integral part of the region. Problems need to be resolved. Whether that means the Palestinian problem needs to be resolved in its entirety and the Palestinians need their state, they're elusive about it. They say they need at least more than what the now president of UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, got in the Abraham Accords, which was an Israeli commitment not to annex territory in the, in, in the West Bank. But of course, have the Israelis really kept to that commitment? This government is intent on annexation. And annexation has been underway for quite some time. So the Israelis just haven't said it openly. These guys, the government saying, the Israeli government is like, yeah, we want to annex. I mean, they're they're pretty open about the whole thing. So I think that the there is a significant, significant obstacles to the Saudis getting more than Mohammed bin Zayed right now, but they're not averse to taking steps and saying hey, we're, we're prepared for this. We're ready to deal and laying it all on on the Israelis. That's pretty clever thinking. I was just in Israel and I w went out one Saturday evening for one of the weekly demonstrations. Yeah. Now 32 weeks in a and row. It, it was, in some ways, it was quite inspiring. But it's so clear that this government, unless it falls as rapidly as the previous government, has no care about 
these niceties. And I wonder if Mohammed bin Salman knows that and is sufficiently clever to just sort of, there's no risk to him because he knows that this current Israeli government will not be open to any such normalization overture if the price for normalization is a cease and desist order right. on any more building of, of settlements. You would think that they would understand that. Of course, there are a number of interlocutors with the Saudis who are suggesting that Israeli society's desire to have normal relations with Saudi Arabia, and you see that in President Itzhak Herzog's speech to a joint session of Congress a number of weeks ago, in which he said, Israelis pray every day for peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So these interlocutors, some of who are in Washington, suggest that Israeli society desire for this will overwhelm this government and force either a change of government or force their hand. I have I'm very, very skeptical of that because there's every incentive among the different parties that make up the current coalition to stick with the coalition no matter what, because they'll never get back into Knesset again, and they'll never have another opportunity like they have now to realize uh, their vision, despite the fact that a slight majority of Israelis oppose them. So you'd think that the Saudis would recognize this. And I think what I think very hard to tell what happens in the in, in the royal court. But there is something to suggest that the Saudis are going along. They look like the better party here. They're wringing things out of the Biden administration, that they're playing a longer game here. And the goal here isn't necessarily so much normalization so quickly, but it is to get some goodies from the United States, including getting the security commitments, weaponry, getting the United States to lay off the Saudis on human rights issues that will all be good for Saudi Arabia without them ever having to sign on the dotted line with the Israelis because the Israelis are the, are the, the, the problematic party here. I suppose people, to come back to the beginning, uh, in Washington and elsewhere, who like the idea of being a human rights-led foreign policy, particularly when it comes to people who murder journalists, are just going to have to live with this reality. They can publish opinion pieces in the Washington Post, but it's just it's just something they're going to have to suck up and deal with. I think that's essentially the message that the administration is giving them right now. Although, you know, in, in public statements, the National Security Advisor would say, we remain committed to a foreign policy of values and Middle East coordinator at the White House, a guy named Brett McGurk, will say, here are the five pillars of American approach to the Middle East. And the fifth one is values. And the same thing with the Assistant Secretary of State for the Near East, uh, Ambassador Barbara Leaf. The same kind of talking points in which, you know, they still emphasize values. But in reality, this is just this is just kind of empty rhetoric at this point. Out of necessity, it's unfortunate, but it seems that out of necessity, at least the way in which they're defining American interests and goals in the region, which in which China looms large and energy prices loom large, human rights, as it has over and over and over and over again, taken a backseat. That's such a good end point. But I'm going to ask one more question. Okay. Okay. So for listeners, should they get to know a bit more about Saudi Arabia, 
No, I think we'll probably have to think about Saudi Arabia. And I, I don't think we're moving as quickly as some would like to decarbonize. Uh, I still don't think that we have a rational energy policy. And Saudi Arabia obviously is going to continue to play a role in global oil markets. And it seems intent on playing a role in, in geopolitics. So I think your listeners should certainly acquaint themselves with Saudi Arabia, although it can be frustrating anger-inducing and complex. Stephen, thanks so very much. It's my pleasure, Michael. Great talking to you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations. And remember to visit the website, goldfarpod.com, and make a donation to help me keep the podcast going. Thanks.